Welcome to this episode of the Australian Naval History Podcast Series, where we examine important events in the Royal Australian Navy's history. Hello, I'm Justin Burke, the 2022 Thorley Scholar at the Lowy Institute and CSIS in Washington, D.C., and a PhD candidate in Naval Strategy at Macquarie University in Sydney. Between 1985 and 1997, Australia undertook its second largest warship construction program, and arguably one of its most successful. 22 Pacific-class patrol boats were constructed not for the Royal Australian Navy, but for 12 military, coast guard and police forces of Pacific Island nations. They were also known as the Pacific Patrol Boats. In this podcast, an expert panel will discuss this program and the efforts to provide effective maritime surveillance and fisheries protection. To tell this story and to examine the ongoing legacy, I'm joined by Commodore Jack McCaffrey, who was a naval aviator. Currently, he is a visiting fellow at both the University of Wollongong and the University of New South Wales, Canberra, at the Defence Academy. He co-authored Wings of Gold, the story of Australian pilots and observers who trained with the United States Navy, 1966-68, and is currently co-writing A History of the Pacific Patrol Boat Program for the Navy. Captain Andrew McKinnon, who was the Pacific Patrol Boat Program Project Director during the design, finalisation and early construction years, and later was the Director of the Southwest Pacific Section in IPDIV, International Policy Division in Defence, where he helped establish the vessels in the recipient countries. Commander Andy Schroeder, during his career, has had an active service in Timor-Leste and commanded the Pacific Patrol Boat HMAS Bunbury, the patrol boat rather, HMAS Bunbury. Relevant to this episode, he was the Maritime Surveillance Advisor to the Government of Samoa in 2006 and 7. He is now the Australian War Memorial Navy Fellow, assisting with naval input to the museum's redevelopment. Thank you all for joining me. First off, let's set the scene. Jack McCaffrey, noting that only three Pacific Island countries have navies, how have the Pacific patrol boats been operated in the recipient countries? Thanks, Justin. Well, as you mentioned, three um, of the countries did have navies, and so we have Papua New Guinea, uh, Tonga and Fiji were the three in question. Uh, Papua New Guinea was already operating the attack-class patrol boats which had been in service in the RAN since the mid-1960s, uh, Fiji had a small number of patrol craft which it had received from both uh, Israel and the United States and Tonga had two small or 12 metre Brook Marine patrol boats. So there, there was the, the rudimentary and organisation was there but uh, the supporting capacity was very, very limited. All the other countries um, that operated Pacific patrol boats did so through their police forces, their national police forces. Now five of them uh, did have some uh, prior patrol boat operating experience, but very, very limited. For example, uh, the Federated States of Micronesia had from time to time chartered a patrol boat. Um, Palau had uh, converted a confiscated Taiwanese fishing vessel. Uh, and both the Republic of the Marshall Islands and the Solomons had num- a small number of very small uh, inshore patrol craft. In all cases, though, the supporting infrastructure was almost non-existent, uh, especially as, as far as logistic support is concerned. And the other five countries involved had no... Um, sorry, the other four countries involved had no um, patrol boat experience whatsoever, so they were coming into the program absolutely cold. 
And one of the primary challenges that each of the countries had uh, was in generating crews. And for, for some, it was a case of converting policemen into sailors uh, or sailors into police, or both, as, as the case was for a number of them. Um, as I said, infrastructure in many of the countries was rudimentary at best, non-existent in places. Uh, such things even as workshops, wharves, just didn't exist in some of the countries and uh, operational uh, operational control centres for the boats as well, just not did not exist. One of the other issues that arose in operating the patrol boats, especially with the police forces, was that um, they took quite a large chunk of the national police budgets and this became a source of uh, ill feeling uh, amongst the police forces where the maritime elements were sequestering most of the budgets uh, for those police forces. The primary tasking was fishery patrol, uh, to patrol the exclusive economic zones and they did this mainly on their own although there were as we'll hear later on um, plenty of opportunities for cooperative patrols with other Pacific patrol boats and uh, the ships of other navies. Air support and the way of air surveillance was provided from time to time by I guess what we can call the original quad um, aircraft from Australia, New Zealand, France and the United States but that support had to be booked well in advance of, of any patrolling and so it, it was not really responsive to the, the needs of the countries, um, particularly if they had some short, short um, lead time um, patrol needs coming up. Um, amongst the, the operations they did conduct uh, cooperatively, um, the Forum Fisheries Agency based in Honiara has been running annual operations and they, um, which take in boats from three, four or more countries um, to operate within the EZs of one or more of, of the operating countries each year. And th these operations, um, the main ones I guess it would be um, Kuru Kuru, um, Big Eye and uh, Island Chief. Uh, the other tasking that they conduct and I guess they, they've conducted this sometimes um, to the frustration of um, the Australian authorities who've been trying to get them to focus on the primary task of fisheries patrol, but um, they have often been used by their owning governments for government tasking, uh, just transport amongst the islands um, because there was no other way of, of achieving objects like that. They've also been extremely useful uh, in search and rescue and have conducted a number of very significant rescues. Um, I guess the other thing that, that needs to be uh, mentioned is that um, for the boats to operate successfully, they had to be supported properly, and this was always a bit of a challenge. As I've mentioned earlier, the facilities in the operating countries w were very limited, so nothing beyond um, basic unit level maintenance was conducted there. Most of the other maintenance was done in uh, genuine shipyards, some in the South Pacific, primarily Suva, um, but most uh, here in Australia. And there were three main activities that, that uh, were carried out for this. Um, each boat went through uh, a biennial slipping, so every two years it was taken out of the water, repaired and, and maintained in other ways. Uh, slippings, of course, also occurred uh, in between those uh, two yearly periods whenever, it was, whenever they were needed, say for groundings or whatever else. Um, each of the boats went through a half-life refit um, in the period from 1995 to 2003, and uh, these were 11-week um, events and conducted uh, I think in Ballina and Cairns for the most part. And finally, each of the boats went through a life of type extension refit uh, beginning in about uh, 2001 
uh, and this enabled the boats to continue operating beyond their 15-year uh, life of type uh, into the current uh, period now where they're being replaced by the Guardian-class patrol boats. That's excellent. Thank you, uh, Jack. And turning to Andy, um, how would you characterise the major challenges faced by the operating countries over the years? Has there been a training program of some kind for the crews over the years? Uh, thanks, Justin. I take the first part of that question, um, recalling that the boats, as Jack has mentioned, were progressively de delivered to the recipient countries between 1987 and 1997. And this meant that the lessons learned by the operating countries in the early years could be translated where possible into policy or practices for the others who took later boats. But the key to their operations, and, and this is something Jack has already mentioned, was the need for shore support infrastructure, wharves, fueling facilities, engineering workshops, stores facilities, and administrative office spaces, etc. And demand here varied between countries. For example, those with already established Navy capabilities had most of the support facilities they needed to operate their patrol boats effectively from the outset. Conversely, those who were embarking on establishing a maritime surveillance capability as part of their police force for the first time needed support to establish those facilities. And the Defence Cooperation Program provided significant funding, uh, support and projects across the region to enable the parent countries to operate their boats effectively. In many cases, these were managed and delivered by the Australian Army's 19 Chief Engineer Works Organisation. Uh, and that ranged from fitting out or modifying existing structures to building complete new wharves, surveillance centres and other support facilities. The other major challenge, again, faced perhaps more by the smaller economies than the larger ones, was, and probably still remains, provision of sufficient annual funding to cover the operating and maintenance costs of their boats and crews. Notwithstanding the original PPV project expectation that recipients would fund their own operating and maintenance costs, experience showed that the budgetary constraints and limited funding provided by the host governments in some cases resulted in the vessels not proceeding to sea as often as they needed to. Of itself, that demanded careful planning to ensure that the best bang for buck could be achieved by operating the patrol boats at sea when they could be most effective. Of course, that didn't account for times when the boats must go to sea uh, if called upon for national search and rescue or other emergencies. And over the years, the Defence Cooperation Program has provided supplementary funding, notably for fuel, to countries who might otherwise not optimise use of their patrol boats to meet the national needs. I'm sure that host countries were challenged at times in raising the necessary workforce to operate and maintain their boats. Um, even so, in various countries, from my observation, I believe that many, many of their crew members and their patrol boats came to be um, seen, their jobs seen as prestigious and sought after by those who had the necessary qualifications to join their defence or police maritime wing. To the second part about training, um, this, of course, is recognised right from the outset as critical to the success, successful operation of the program. And in part one of this podcast, we mentioned the need to provide training for the crews uh, right from the outset. And that ranged from generic training for those with little seagoing experience to specialist engineering and operator training on the specific patrol boat equipments. Much of that training established at the time 
I believe, has continued with a key element being ongoing training at the Australian Maritime College in Launceston for the technical and the seamen crew members. The uh, Australian Maritime College provided a range of courses in marine technical, seamanship, firefighting, communications and management subjects. And it was highly beneficial that Defence had provided the college with the same main engine generator and switchboard as are fitted on the boats. Officer training has also been provided primarily at HMAS Watson in Sydney with a focus on safe navigation and leadership aspects. And no doubt those training courses have morphed to some degree over the years, but the fact remains that Defence continued to provide necessary training in Australia throughout the life of the Pacific Patrol boats. Aside from classroom-oriented training, the gradual development of cooperative maritime surveillance activities in the region has meant that vessels from neighbouring countries have joined up to conduct seagoing exercises that enable better operational training in various aspects of ship operations. Um, and those can be bilateral or on a larger multi multilateral scale, as, as Jack has mentioned. For example, uh, that allows for crews to practice their boarding techniques for use in investigating uh, foreign fishing vessels or various rescue, towing or other evolutions. And such training exercises increase crew confidence and identify unsafe practices. Uh, the Royal Australian Navy, the Royal New Zealand Navy and the US Coast Guard specifically have their ships have been regular participates, participants rather, in this type of training. And just as an aside, Jack mentioned exercise Big Eye as being one. I don't know whether you're aware that that name was chosen by the Defence Advisor and I at the time um, to reflect the physical characteristics of the Chairman of the Foreign Fisheries Agency at the time. <laughs> anyway, I think Andy Schroeder will cover that in more detail. Excellent. Thank you there, Andy. I'd like to come back to Jack and, you know, despite the challenges and costs uh, that we've been discussing, what benefits have the Pacific Patrol boats brought to the operating countries? Well, for all perhaps but Papua New Guinea, um, their exclusive economic zones were the biggest economic resource they had. Um, they were unable, they simply had, didn't have the capacity to exploit the fish stocks in those exclusive economic zones themselves. And so it came down to um, being able to license foreign vessels to fish in, in those zones and to impose financial penalties for any illegal fishing that went on. And so the role of the patrol boat was to do that legal enforcement and to generate the income um, uh, that would come from it. Now, um, before the advent of the Pacific patrol boats, most of the countries had little or no capacity to operate within their exclusive economic zone. So they had no capacity to manage um, the, the fishing that might have been going on there. So bringing in the Pacific patrol boats um, added immeasurably to the capacity of most of them, but it certainly gave capacity to those that didn't have it. And there was an expectation, I think, from the outset that um, the combination of um, licence fees and fines would, if not just offset the cost of operating the patrol boats, that it might actually, in some cases, cover the cost of operating the patrol boats. I don't think it ever actually covered, but certainly in many cases it did offset uh, substantially the cost of operating the patrol boats. But um, I think too that um, because of the way the legal systems in some of those countries uh, have, have worked, um, the best use hasn't been made, let's say, of the, the fines uh, that, w that could have been uh, obtained from illegal fishing. Some of the other benefits that flowed from having the boats uh, include, I guess, the first that came to mind really was the uh, the development of 
of, of great technical skills that some of the countries just did not have, particularly in the maritime field. And those skills translated into the civil community once people had served their time in their police force or their navy or whatever it was. Um, the development of maritime infrastructure, which we've already um, mentioned, um, but that also, of course, uh, helped uh, the, the countries themselves as well. Wharves, workshops, safe berths for, for boats. Uh, the development of cooperative efforts, which they simply hadn't been able to, to achieve uh, prior, um, and that that had benefits not just for the fisheries patrols, but also for search and rescue uh, and for law, other aspects of law enforcement uh, throughout the region. Um, the patrol boats, the presence of the patrol boats also enabled each of these countries to develop closer relationships with Australia, and for some that they had not had really close relationships with Australia. And these were generated through the work of the and presence and work of the advisors, um, the annual defence cooperation program talks that took place in each of the countries uh, with our own people, and of course um, reciprocal visits uh, by politicians, our politicians visiting them, and vice versa. Uh, and of course the the op opportunities for training um, both within the RAN and also at the Maritime College, which which Andy has already spoken to. And finally, I guess uh, one thing that that does come through from certainly from from what I've read is that there was genuine pride in ownership by these countries of the of their boats, whether they had one, two or three or four, as as was the case with some of them. Uh, on the other hand, though, um, they were the benefits, but um, the benefits did did not flow, I guess, as strongly as we would have liked. Um, the boats, as Andy uh, hinted at earlier, um, were not used as much as we would have liked and I think there were two reasons mainly for that. Um, cost was one and many of the countries were simply unable to, to fund uh, the level of operations that we would have liked to have seen them do, um, even with uh, assistance from us. And secondly, um, that there were cultural issues. Um, some of the crews generally didn't like going to sea, um, which makes life a bit tough. Um, also, the approach to maintenance in the South Pacific um, is, let's say, uh, somewhat more relaxed than, than it is in, in the RAN. Um, and so trying to impose what we would call planned maintenance routines uh, in, in some of these countries proved really, really difficult. And when, when you don't maintain a vessel properly, you don't get to operate it when you want to necessarily. Um, so I think I'll, I'll, I think I'll leave it at that. Thank you, Jack. Well, picking up on the uh, point you raised about advisors, turning back to Andy McKinnon, from the beginning of the program, the Royal Australian Navy provided small teams of advisors in each of the operating countries. Can you describe the makeup of these teams and what their responsibilities have been? Thanks, Justin. Well, the teams essentially comprised one seaman officer and one or two technical senior sailors. The seaman officer was invariably a mid-seniority Royal Australian Navy Lieutenant Commander who had previous seagoing patrol boat experience, ideally in command, and he was known as the Maritime Surveillance Advisor and head of the, the small advisory team. The senior sailors could be either at Chief Petty Officer or Petty Officer level, and in countries with a larger number of boats, for example, Papua New Guinea, two advisors were provided. One is a specialist mechanical engineer, if you like, and the other with skills in power distribution, electronics, etc. In countries with just one boat, usually only one technical advisor was provided. If necessary, he could call on assistance from 
other advisors elsewhere in the region if confronted with a technical problem beyond his uh, remit. I, I would add that New Zealand has previously assisted by providing technical advisors, uh, I believe, in Samoa and Cook Islands. And broadly, as the title suggests, their role, the Maritime Surveillance Advisor provided advice on assi and assistance on all the matters related to the operations of the patrol boats. That included ongoing in-country crew training in navigation and ship safety, etc., surveillance planning, including coordination with any surveillance flights, and most importantly, maintaining good relations with the commanding officers of the boats and regular liaison with the military or police chief under whose operational and administrative remit the patrol boats fell. Um, this undoubtedly extended to funding aspects as well. They also kept in touch with the Australian head of mission locally, if there was one, and with, with the Australian defence advisors in the region to whom they were administratively responsible and who looked out for the in-country advisors' well-being. Those with previously limited diplomatic experience learned quickly on the job. Um, the technical advisors were very much hands-on in helping crew members resolve defects or other engineering challenges. They kept a close eye on the stores system operating in the country and helped regularly in liaising with the follow-on support arrangement, which was separately contracted under the Pacific Petrobo project in the region for the provision of spares or replacement equipment. Hull maintenance was something they watched out for, and, and um, Jack hinted at that, to avoid deterioration. And they also fulfilled a valuable training role, remembering that some crew members would change out periodically and new ones embarked perhaps before the opportunity came for training in Australia. All advisors occasionally embarked uh, in the patrol boats to sea ride, to observe and advise on aspects they felt might need addressing, and to provide confidence to crews and some assurance to the local officials that their boats were operating well. I think Andy Schroeder, though, is much better qualified to, to talk about this, having been MSA. Excellent. Yes, I'd like to turn to Andy Schroeder now. And indeed, you were one of these maritime surveillance advisors or MSAs. It's easy to picture it as being a fairly idyllic uh, place to work, if not an idyllic job. I'm sure reality can sometimes be somewhat different. What was life like for the advisors? What was the main work and the personal challenges involved? And did you have any opportunities to interact with other advisors? Thanks, Justin. <clears throat> well, you're right. Uh, Samoa is considered uh, an idyllic tropical island and uh, tourism uh, to Samoa is indeed aimed at just that, staying in farlays or, or beach huts uh, on white beaches inside peaceful reef-fringed uh, lagoons with cool drinks and tropical fruits. Uh, that's the picture I'm painting. Uh, that is, of course, the tourist experience and uh, daily life over two and a half years uh, on a rock in the middle of the Pacific, though, uh, can be it like that at times, but uh, more often than not, it's uh, significantly different. Work was different. Um, I arrived in the country straight out of a sea command myself, and uh, so I, I'd handed over my command, and I was in Samoa probably three weeks after I'd uh, stepped off my ship, uh, and my brain was still wire wired as a Royal Australian Navy commanding officer, um, and subsequently I caused a bit of friction <laughs> through misunderstanding, uh, mostly on my part. Um, of the of Samoan culture. 
I soon uh, learned the error in my ways, though, and uh, I, was, I was just too direct. Uh, and I, I changed tact and became and made more headway with the boat. Uh, that's MV Nafanua and her crew, who are actually a great bunch of professional sailors who just wanted to make a difference uh, for their nation. The cultural challenges or differences uh, remained throughout my time there, obviously, uh, and were always something that had to be considered when the boat was scheduled for sea time. Um, this was mentioned earlier. Um, you know, often a ship would be scheduled for sea, but scheduled to proceed at 10 o'clock, and I'd look out my window, and the boat would still be there at 10.30, and I'd look out my window, and it'd still be there at lunchtime, and then I'd wander down and say, guys, you know, you're meant to have sailed, and they'd tell me that such and such person hadn't shown up, and uh, I'd say, well, why not? Well he's got a more senior chiefly title than the captain, so therefore he'll come to the ship when he's ready. And then the ship will sail. <laughs> um, so, so you're dealing with things like that, uh, which clearly from a, a Western uh, Navy's perspective, uh, that's just so far in left field, and you could probably understand the, um, the uh, challenges I had coming straight out of command myself. Ashore in Samoa, uh, as a non-Samoan, you're a minority. But it's interesting because you're a wealthy minority. Um, uh, and it poses curious circumstances so that you don't offend people. On top of that, everyone in the country knows who you are and what your role is in the country. And exas exacerbating this for me, when I arrived, my predecessor had just replaced the Navy vehicle and brought into the country a brand new large SUV. That wasn't the issue. The problem was that the only other car in the country like the MSAs, the same make, the same model, the same colour, the same delivery date, was the Prime Minister's. And it was exactly the same. So wherever you went, anywhere on the island, anyone would stop and look at you and say, oh, is that the Prime Minister? Oh, no, it's that Navy guy. Um, so you're always in the spotlight. Uh, you also live in a compound with barbed wire fences and security guards. Uh, the guard's main purpose, though, uh, was not to keep uh, people away. It was, it was more about keeping packs of wild dogs away from the compound, which did roam through Samoa. Daily consumables were also uh, always discussed. If you wanted to eat Australian-type foods, um, you needed to be aware of when the supply ship would come into harbour, and a couple of hours after it had arrived, you'd get down to the expat uh, grocery store and and buy whatever you, you wanted. Things that we take for granted here, um, uh, they're re really expensive. In 2005, we'd pay 15 Australian dollars for two litres of fresh milk. And it may not seem so outrageous now, but we would also pay $12 for an iceberg lettuce. Post-COVID, things have changed. <laughs> but uh, we adopted the approach that when in Rome, or in our case, Samoa, uh, and we elected to... Uh, Eat Samoan style, and um, and realistically, they were they were pretty uh, inexpensive. Sashimi grade tuna, ten dollars a kilo. Um, lobsters were less than three dollars, and tropical fruit and vegetables were uh, re really cheap. We became accustomed to UHT milk, and uh, indeed, when we got back to Australia after two and a half years in the country, my son was four and a half. And we took a lot of coaxing for him to drink fresh milk. Um, so he'd turn up his nose and say, that's not milk. And uh, he'd need some UHT. <coughs> uh, 
for those uh, ADF personnel on the postings that had school-aged children, education was always something that needed to be considered before you left Australia. Uh, the, the schooling standards in many of the Pacific Island nations are different to, to those in Australia. And as such, uh, a lot of people would elect for their older children to stay in Australia and go to boarding school, uh, while many parents whose children came on posting with them would engage local tutors, uh, usually people who'd had experience in Australian education, to fill the potential gaps between the two systems. Health was also something you had to uh, consider. On posting, you're provided with the mother of all first aid kits, and it was three or four large... 50 or 60 litre containers um, uh, and it had everything from IV saline drips, uh, prescription drugs through to band-aids and Panadol and everything in between, which is all well and good if you know how to use it um, or if you have access to trained medical staff. In Samoa, uh, in Apia, there was uh, the National Hospital uh, but there was also a private hospital that was set up by a Japanese aid agency. Now, when we arrived, uh, my daughter was only eight weeks old. That I would not recommend to anyone uh, considering <laughs> taking up uh, the role in the future. But consequently, we had to have all her immunisations uh, to meet the Australian standards imported, and they were flown in using ice packs, and then they were given to her by the private hospital just down the road, and her Australian immunisation forms were all filled out and paperwork sent back to Australia. The ADF logistics chain and the medical personnel, along with the hospital staff in Samoa, as I mentioned, were extremely helpful in achieving uh, all her immunisations. And indeed, my very healthy daughter is about to turn 18. <laughs> uh, entertainment uh, was was different. There were, there were only a couple of what you'd call a restaurant um, and bars. Uh, there was one golf course. There are some gyms, tennis courts and the sailing club. Most socialisation occurred between the expats at functions held in the embassies or the high commissions and residences in and around Apia. Although each function was always attended by the same people, it was a really small gene pool. Uh, so more often than not, these official functions, which they were, were more like casual get-togethers. Uh, and there'd be uh, probably three a month that, that you'd be going to. Um, most Sundays, though, we headed off to the beach in the morning um, and then we'd kick back at home in the afternoon and the evening. It was definitely a much slower pace of life. Interaction with the other advisors that you asked about uh, was encouraged and it was really beneficial. Uh, and as was mentioned earlier, most of the other MSAs were previous commanding officers of RAM patrol boats, so you already knew most of your peers. And, and the uh, technical sailors, uh, very similar, they, they pretty much knew each other as well because they'd come from the small boat community within our Navy. Uh, there were occasional visits to uh, other Pacific um, patrol boat countries uh, and the Foreign Fisheries Agency in Honoyara where, where we'd meet uh, for um, conferences and things like that. There was also an annual recall to Canberra. Uh, where we spent a week recalibrating and being brought up to date on matters relating to the program, to the Navy and to the ADF. Um, during what well, I, was, I was in Samoa 2005 to mid-2007, so email was well established by, by that stage, but clearly when the program started in 87, it was only being dreamed of, I imagine, mm -hmm. at that stage. Also, uh, telephone uh, connectivity was pretty good, so you could, you know, if there was a pressing matter, you could always pick up the phone and get on with business that way. 
Fantastic. That's such a vivid picture. Could, could I just add a couple of Please, Jack. brief yes, anecdotes that, that will support what Andy said? Um, and, and it's not just the advisors, but I think the advisors' wives also played a pretty major role. And one anecdote that I recall um, from my own reading was in the Marshall Islands at one, one occasion, um, the MSA's wife coordinated uh, an air and sea search and rescue operation because the MSA was absent doing something else and none of the locals was prepared to do it. Um, so she stepped in. Now, I don't know whether she had whether she had naval experience or not, but it, I think uh, it just shows that it is a team effort um, and always is, I think, in the Navy anyway. Well, go, um, sorry, going on from that with uh, the partners, um, so uh, my technical advisor um, had had a stroke when the patrol boat was in refit in Cairns and so he was still in Australia um, in hospital. At the same time, uh, I had a uh, recurrence of a long-standing back injury and was medevaced out in a wheelchair. And so they're the two Australians running the program. Um, and I had to, I got approval through uh, my desk officer for my wife to manage all the finances uh, for the ADF in Samoa for the three months that I was in hospital. Um, so, so yes, it's 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 uh, it sounds like it's not unusual that um, that the the partners step in and 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 help out. And th- yeah, there was at least one other occasion. It wasn't the Marshall Islands, but there was one other um, country where. Uh, the wife had had. She was. I think she was a nurse, uh, but because of her experience, she was able to deal with uh, some kind of infection that was going through the children in the, the local town. So, of great assistance there. The the other one that comes to mind, and, and Andy mentioned that in respect to food. Um, well, f- five or six years ago, I was doing some project work in the Pacific, and I was on the way from Suva to Tuvalu, and as I was checking in, um, there were people hovering around the check-in. Um, counter and I couldn't figure out what was going on but what they were doing was waiting to see what my cases weighed to see how much fresh food they could get additional to their own luggage and they were bringing fresh food back from Fiji to to Tuvalu with them because it was in fairly scarce supply in their own country. (laughs) Indeed, very good. Um, Andy Schroeder, just to follow up with your descriptions there. Can you also describe what a typical operational patrol, should it ever leave uh, the wharf, uh, what did it involve? Well, of course, it was different for each country. Um, uh, given the number of boats in each country varied uh, and the size of a country's economic exclusion zone varied. Uh, Samoa had perhaps the smallest economic exclusion zone out of all the participating countries. And... Uh, we could do a sweep through the entire EZ in between 36 to 48 hours. So we aim to complete one of those patrols twice a month, uh, weather, weather and ship availability dependent. Um, now Samoa did, uh, when I was there, was doing uh, really well and was one of the uh, uh, countries that had a lot, a lot of sea days, but, but a lot was 57 in a year. That was considered a lot, which by, by our standards would be eyebrows would be raised but um, they got to sea fairly frequently and they wanted to get to sea but there were hiccups along the way cultural hiccups we might call them Uh, when I arrived in 2005 there had been a couple of um, uh, operations where countries had worked together and I think there had been a Kurukuru at that stage one operation Kurukuru Um, but in late but uh, Samoa definitely had not participated in a, um, a joint 
operation of any shape or form. But in 2006, we had a memorandum of understanding signed between the governments of Samoa and the Cook Islands that enabled the boats from either country to conduct a patrol in each other nation's economic exclusion zone. And then in early 2007, with the MSA from the Cook Islands, we conducted the first joint and combined patrol of the Cook Islands and Samoan EEZ in Operation Tui Moana. The forces included the two Pacific-class patrol boats, one from the Cook Islands and the other Samoan, a P-3 surveillance aircraft from the Royal New Zealand Aircraft uh, Air Force and uh, headquarters and planning staff from Australia. That was the two MSAs. Uh, while there were no intercepts, boardings or apprehensions, which was a bit disappointing, the operation was a, a success in achieving all the interoperability objectives we were, we were aiming at. And, and now, though, a, as was mentioned by uh, uh, the other speakers, um, there's more and more of these combined and joint patrols going on with multiple ships and aircraft uh, operating together. Uh, the Pacific-class patrol boats, um, well, these these patrol boats of this program also play a significant role in search and rescue in each nation. In 2005, uh, Cyclone Olaf absolutely smashed American Samoa, which is only 60 nautical miles away from Samoa, and consequently it severely impacted Samoa. A number of fishing vessels were reported missing in the Samoan economic exclusion zone. So once the severity of the storm had passed, it was still raging. I was impressed that these guys went out. Um, but Nafanua, with the support from uh, another Kiwi P3, commenced the search for the missing vessels. A number were found safe, but some were confirmed sunk. And Nafanua was able to locate and rescue many of the crew members. Unfortunately, there were also some who had died and recovered, but there were quite a few who were just never found. Uh, the point is that in Samoa, the Pacific-class patrol boat and her crew do, do actually make a, a big difference. Fantastic. Coming back to Andy McKinnon, I wondered if you wanted to add to that. Are there any particular operations that you'd like to mention? Thank you. Um, look, there's one thing I'd just like to tack on the back end of um, Andy's comments, uh, and that's with respect to the patrol boat's ability to support in times of disaster. Um, the patrol boat was designed to be able to export power. So if there was a village but with a wharf that you could still get alongside that had no power, in theory, the patrol boat could get alongside and export power and help in the recovery process. Um, but there's, I think, one aspect that I think uh, needs emphasising more as a philosophy than a specific operation. Um, at the early stage of the PPB project, there was a recognition in defence that small patrol boats with a radar detection range of at best 20 miles and operating singly across vast tracts of ocean were a most inefficient means of detecting and identifying and policing illegal vessels infringing in their country's exclusive economic zones. So the Pacific Island Forum had a very efficient, effective organisation known as the Forum Fisheries Agency, which we've talked a bit about already, established in Honiara to maintain policies and assist in controlling licensed exploitation of fisheries resources in the region, which for many countries across the Central Pacific remain a vital element of their economy. The FFA, uh, Forum Fisheries Agency, provides a, max, a practical means of coordinating the regional cooperation called for by all nations, who in 1992 had signed into force the powerful New A Treaty on Cooperation in Fisheries Surveillance and Law Enforcement in the South Pacific region. A long-winded name, but the cooperation between 
uh, Samoa and uh, Cook Islands, which Andy Schroeder just mentioned, was an example of just that. And indeed, there was a special flag that uh, a vessel could fly if it was operating in another adjacent country's waters. Uh, it would fly the new A treaty flag, theoretically, to show that it's uh, operating under the provisions of that treaty. Among its many provisions uh, is that any vessel fishing in the region must be in good standing on the FFA-controlled regional register. Any vessels proven to be fishing illegally in any of the participating countries is automatically blacklisted from fishing in any of the others. It's a big incentive for compliance. A reporting network was needed to better link the individual countries to the Foreign Fisheries Agency in order to maintain, if you like, a regional picture of fishing and other activities. So in the early 90s, a defence cooperation project was initiated to install a maritime surveillance cooperation network, a, a terminal of which was located in each country's maritime headquarters or operational headquarters with direct links to the Forum Fisheries Agency. That used Inmarsat at the time as the operating system. Security aspects of all that determined the need for a dedicated surveillance headquarters at the Forum Fisheries Agency. And that was duly completed again as a defence cooperation project around 1995 with a, that first up a Royal Australian Air Force advisor initially installed to operate the system and liaise directly with the Forum Fisheries Agency. Improved regional fisheries surveillance patrols conducted by, in our case, the Royal Australian Air Force P3 Orion aircraft were further enhanced when we um, paid for um, some high quality cameras that would provide uh, good quality imagery that would allow these uh, photographs of vessels overflown to be transmitted back to the Forum Fisheries Agency, not quite in real time then, uh, and to the relevant country in whose waters the vessel was sighted. So real-time aerial surveillance, which discovered and reported an unlicensed vessel, could relatively quickly, within a day or so, result in the vessel being blacklisted and potentially find large amounts by the offended country based just on that photographic evidence. Importantly, the timing of those flights, which were not publicly known, provided the impetus for the patrol boats to be at sea to reduce response time and with a greater chance of boarding and apprehending any illegal vessels reported by the aircraft. It's been used to good effect in countries where fishery stocks are much larger and, and the incentive to fish illegally is greater, such as, as Jack again mentioned, the Micronesia, particularly the Federated States of Micronesia, where fines imposed on apprehended fishing vessels assisted greatly in meeting their patrol boat operating costs. The need for licensed vessels to be fitted with and transmitting on their vessel monitoring systems added to the ability of the Forum Fisheries Agency and individual countries to monitor licensed fishing activity in the region. Um, and finally, I recall in 1995, uh, we established an early agreement for greater cooperation and coordination of surveillance flights by the Royal Australian Air Force, Royal New Zealand Air Force and French military aircraft from Namir to better ensure coverage of the EEZs in the region and avoid timing overlaps. I think you mentioned already that the US uh, has since uh, uh, come on board with that uh, system. The key point here uh, is that each patrol boat was an important element of a much larger maritime surveillance cooperation network, which had many moving parts, uh, 
and relied for its effectiveness in protecting South Pacific fisheries resources on close cooperation from all countries involved and maintaining the credibility and power of the Forum Fisheries Agency and the Regional Register was a key element of that. Fantastic. Could I just make Jack, please. the point too, though, um, and I, I hinted at it earlier, but um, sometimes uh, the legal systems in the countries did not really support um, their patrol boats in the way that they should have. And sometimes a, a Pacific patrol boat would bring an illegal fisher, fishing boat into uh, home harbour um, with the object of having the captain front court uh, and find that the next morning the boat had gone. Uh, the captain had probably come ashore and done a deal with somebody in, in the law enforcement organisation yeah. and so uh, the value of the of the whole operation was lost. And this, of course, obviously had impact on morale as far as um, crews were concerned. Good point. True. Indeed. I'd like to throw it back to Andy Schroeder. Um, picking up on your description of how advisors were routinely interacting with their host country governments, sometimes the only uh, Australian representation in some of these countries. How did advisors manage this diplomatic aspect of their jobs and were you well, well supported from Canberra? Well, as I've mentioned, I was in Samoa and there was a, a, a really good-sized high commission in up here. Uh, so most of the government-to-government -government liaison was taken undertaken by the diplomatic staff. I assisted uh, and was there as advisor, but but the, uh, the bulk of the legwork was done by trained professionals. Uh, this enabled me, though, to focus on the maritime wing and and hopefully get as much as possible out of the people and the ship uh, to achieve the objectives of the program. With the diplomatic staff available, uh, that was really how we managed to get that memorandum of understanding uh, through all the hoops that had to be jumped both in uh, Samoa and the Cook Islands end. Um, and, and a lot of the government-to-government -government stuff happened uh, through the high commissions in, in those countries. <coughs> um, and again, with input from myself on maritime-specific aspects to the MOU. But once the MOU was signed, um, I then worked closely with the Samoan operations staff, as well as my Cook Islands opposite numbers, to plan and execute the actual operation. So down at the tactical level, yeah, we're really hands-on, but uh, at the strategic level, it was more within... Uh, the, the High Commissions and the Government Departments and Foreign Affairs. Um, so, as, as I also mentioned, I was in Samoa 2005 to mid-2007, and so by that stage, DCP was in a pretty mature state. Uh, and Nafanua had just uh, completed her half-life, uh, half uh, life-of-type extension, and was essentially a new ship. And um, as such, the support from Canberra was well established and, and effective. The real frustration that I had was the constant churn of the desk officers, so you're linked directly into, into Canberra. In two and a half years, I had four different desk officers, and each one, understandably, would ask the same questions as their predecessor and take a bit of time to get up to speed, and then they'd just seem to move on. And uh, I think if there'd been greater continuity uh, at, at that because that's a critical cog, your, your first access into DCP in Canberra, then I reckon we could have achieved even more than what we did. Very good. Staying with you, um, Andy. If, oh, sorry, Jack, please. Um, yeah, just one um, final in interjection on this, and, and it, it comes from a report, an uh, International Policy Division report on, on this very issue uh, relating to the defence cooperation talks in 2009 in Palau, um, and um, it was based on a a statement in the report saying that the MSA was well known to Palau ministers 
government ministers. And the quote goes on to say that such direct access is replicated in most countries where the Defence Cooperation Program personnel are posted, and particularly those without a resident head of mission, is perhaps the most obvious benefit of this defence-led regional engagement program. Mm, excellent. Terrific. I wonder if, um, staying with you now, Andy, you would like to offer uh, any concluding remarks on the Pacific Patrol boat operations and perhaps even lessons learned as we move into this next generation of patrol boats? Well, the next generation of the Pacific Patrol boat has been selected and some have indeed been delivered and are conducting operations. Uh, And the new program is 30 years, uh, projected for 30 years, $2.1 billion package of capability, infrastructure, sustainment, training and coordination to increase maritime security in the region. That's, that's why they're out there. The new program 20, of 22 Guardian class patrol boat uh, builds on the success of the original program. Don't fix it if it's not broken. Um, it's great to see that the new ships in the class are larger. Uh, it would not be too difficult to improve on the sea keeping characteristics of the original boats for which really were tiny, given what we were expecting them to do. Uh, the new boats are a significant step, uh, particularly uh, an increase in technology enabling enhanced capability for the participating nations. I'd suggest that the program benefits uh, all the countries. Uh, from the Australian perspective, we're able to build on our relationships with the participating countries and in so doing contribute to regional stability. From the participating nations perspective, not only does the program provide a maritime presence and enable diplomatic and constabulary tasks to be undertaken, but it also contributes to the longer term development of the respective nations through the training of professional mariners who, as was previously mentioned when they complete their service, often go on to have successful careers in the maritime industry in their own nation. Excellent. Same question to you, Andy McKinnon. Uh, Concluding thoughts and lessons learned? Well, I... uh was about to say similar to Andy Schroeder. I, I, look, I think the key point um, is that we've learned much from the previous project. Um, the, the present new project appears similar in many respects, albeit with a larger vessel uh, and with a much more capable vessel. But what's most encouraging is the second component of what's now called the Pacific Maritime Security Programme, which began in the financial year 1718, and that's the region-wide civilian-contracted aerial surveillance. And, and that contracted fixed-wing capability is supporting targeted, intelligence-driven maritime patrols, enhancing the capacity of our Pacific Island neighbours to locate and stop illegal activity within their economic zones and adjacent high seas. Um, the, the first one of those, I gather, was conducted in Micronesia in 2017, and I gather it's an ongoing uh, effort. It's co- the aircraft tasking is coordinated by the Forum Fisheries Agency in Honiara. Um, and as the only regional surveillance centre, if you like, in the Pacific, the FFA is responsible for day-to-day coordination of the aircraft tasking and facilitating the communications with the regional maritime law enforcement agencies. I note that Australia's currently committed to a contract which expires in 2023 to provide two King Air 200 aircraft delivering 1,400 flying hours a year. Um, They've helped uh, the Pacific Island Forum Fisheries Agency in tackling illegal, unreported and unregulated fishing in the economic zones of the 15 
Pacific Island countries. Our government has recently announced our intention to increase this funding and flying hours, potentially using new technologies in coming years. Um, so I, I make the point that the Pacific Patrol Maritime Security Program, the new one, has continued enhancing uh, Pacific Island countries' capacity to effectively collect, analyse, manage and share maritime security information internally with neighbours and throughout the region. Defence has stepped up its support for regional countries to conduct cooperation patrols and has enhanced the capacity of regional maritime coordination centres through new equipment, as you would expect over the years. Not to be overlooked, though, is that we now have a large number of current and former officers and senior sailors with intimate knowledge of the maritime challenges, capabilities and limitations within the region, as well as many professional ties and friendships established over the past 35 years. And Jack's point about the relationships that were established by the senior Australian defence person in country, i.e. the maritime surveillance advisor, and very senior uh, politicians in the country is not to be underestimated. Maintaining that manpower overhead has been a challenge for Navy, but in my view, in my view, worth every bit of the diplomacy and relationship building that comes with these carefully selected people we post to distant parts of the region. Uh, development of self-reliant regional maritime patrol forces is significantly improving uh, the region's response to resource violations and strengthened regional relations and increased maritime patrol capabilities help maintain Australia's sovereignty and sea lines of communication as well as contributing positively to regional stability and maritime security cooperation. So in conclusion, Australia's continued support of the Pacific Patrol Boat and now its replacement has contributed to ongoing close relations with neighbouring countries and facilitated the generation of cooperative and effective communications and fisheries surveillance and enforcement capacity in the region. And these nation-building skills will undoubtedly continue to develop. Terrific. Thank you, Andy. Uh, and to Jack, any well, concluding remarks? I say here, here to what, what Andy's just said. I mean, the, the, the air surveillance is key to useful um, surface patrolling. And it's I think it's uh, useful for us to not to forget just how big the South Pacific is. And two King Airs doing 1,400 hours a year is not a huge contribution, but it's a great start in making those patrol boats more useful than they otherwise would be. Uh, and so if we can extend... Uh, that program, it will certainly be of, of great value. The, the other um, lesson, which I hope we've learned, and I'm, I, I don't know whether whether we do whether we have, is the one that um, seemed to me to lead to a, a, an ongoing tension during the original program um, between us wanting uh, the operating countries to be self-sufficient. We wanted them to be able to operate these without um, ongoing financial support from Australia, but. Um, that never really proved possible and that there was always um, just a, a, the question of how much do we give and when do we give and, and what sort of um, um, lesson are we providing in, in giving more money. Um, and so I, I, I think the reality is um, if we want these countries to be operating these vessels, we are going to have to enter into a long-term financial commitment as well as any other kind of commitment. It's just I don't think it's really feasible to expect that, especially the really small countries like, say, Tuvalu with a population of 10,000, uh, is going to be able to manage financially uh, over the long term. Sadly, that is all we have time for. 
My thanks to Andy Schroeder, to Andy McKinnon and to Jack McCaffrey. Today's podcast is produced by the Naval Studies Group at the University of New South Wales with the assistance of the university's Creative Media Unit. Its production is supported by the Royal Australian Navy's Sea Power Centre, the Australian Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society of Australia and the Submarine Institute of Australia. Thank you for joining us. And if you like this episode, please tell your friends about the Australian Naval History Podcast series. Goodbye for now.